The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. Well, I want to talk with you today about the weaknesses and the needs and the difficulties in your life. Uh, Today we're answering really a difficult question. Why is it that uh, after you come to faith in Christ and you you place your faith in Him and, and He forgives you of your sins and He adopts you into the family of God, why is it that there are still problems in life? Uh, why is it that it's not pain-free, problem-free Christianity? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, those of you in here who have known the Lord, uh, who have walked with the Lord, uh, you've seen and you've tasted His power. You've seen that He does give us uh, a strength to say no to sin, where before we couldn't say no to sin. Uh, he gives us a, a new heart and a new nature. And out of that new nature and new heart, he changes our marriages. He changes our relationships. We've seen his power. It's undeniable. And yet, we still get allergies, right? We still, um, well, unless Christ returns for us, we'll all die at some point. Uh, we're still sometimes the victims of, of crimes or, or just of, of sins that other people wrong us. Why is it that life isn't perfect after we come to faith in Christ? That's the question we're going to answer today. And I'm going to start by telling you a story about a facility in Colorado called Rocky Flats. Rocky Flats was a, a nuclear warhead manufacturing facility. There's an aerial view of it. Started in 1951 after World War II. And throughout the Cold War, you know, as tensions with Russia grew, this complex just multiplied and multiplied and got bigger and bigger and bigger uh, to where it occupied 6,000 acres, had about 5,000 employees there at any given time. So this place was like a little city. And this is a city where they made uh, atomic bombs, right? Nuclear warheads. Um, so you're trucking, they're trucking all these radioactive materials around, right? And we've got a picture of the glove box here. The glove box is, is the place where a, a worker at Rocky Flats, they'd put their hands into these lead gloves, uh, and they'd handle that silver-gray uh, plutonium, plutonium-239, the only element scientists know of that can trigger uh, the atomic reaction in a nuclear warhead, right? So they'd work for five hours a day there, feeling the heat uh, of their chest up against that lead, looking through the glass, uh, working on this plutonium, welding it at about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. And over the years, Rocky Flats got to be a pretty um, messy place radioactively, right? Um, in fact, in the 1980s, the FBI did the first ever FBI raid of another government entity. Rocky Flats is run by the Department of Energy. In the 1980s, the FBI raids the complex, tells all the workers to go home. They bring the EPA in, and the EPA declares it a, an environmental disaster. Uh, they, they, they declare it a Superfund site. And then through the 1990s, really up until about 2005, uh, the government spent billions and billions of dollars uh, cleaning it up, this huge cleanup project, and now um, it's just a big, empty, radioactive field. So why do we have weakness and pain and suffering in this world? Well, the reason is that we're living spiritually in rocky flats, 
We live in a world that's contaminated by sin. If we go all the way back to Genesis, when God made Adam and Eve, and they lived in a perfect world, there was no death, there was no sin. They had a perfect relationship with God where they could talk to Him any time, but then they chose to turn their backs on Him. And when they did, it started a chain reaction that throughout human history, we've gotten further and further from God, more separated from God, and more contaminated by our sin. So radioactive, spiritual radioactive fallout is all around us. Here's another really important lesson for us to learn from Rocky Flats, and it's this. We tend to deny and ignore our weaknesses. Okay, as radioactive, uh, as Rocky Flats got really radioactive in the 70s and 80s, here's what the upper management did. Uh, employees would come in and they had a dosometer that would measure how much radiation they're getting every day, but it doesn't show them the number, right? It just remembers it and they give it to their boss and then their boss gives it back to them and says, yeah, everything's good, keep working, right? Well, well in the 1980s, the bosses started putting this tape on the dosometers and, and the workers were like, what's going on? They, they realize it's lead tape. You know, the tape is, is, is covering the dosometer so that it doesn't pick up the radiation that the worker's actually getting. And, and then also there were these big, like, shed-sized um, detection units. And, and as those detection units started sending out warning signals, the managers would go to the work crew and say, hey, we, we need you to move this detection unit to another building. And all they were doing is moving it away from the problem because they didn't want to deal with the problem. And sadly, we do the same thing in our lives, right? We tend to ignore and deny our weaknesses because it's just not comfortable to acknowledge them. It's not comfortable to, to lean into our weaknesses. But there's this great spiritual paradox. If we will invite God into our weaknesses... That's where we'll actually see his resurrection power. That's where we're actually going to see him at work. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul's talking to God. Paul's an apostle who's called by God to build the church, and he has a physical problem. He calls it the thorn in the flesh. And he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, please remove this from me. And here's God's reply to him in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, I'm going to sustain you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. It's a verse that if you've been in church for a while, you've heard and you know. But it's a, a spiritual principle that I'm convinced most of us are clueless about including myself. In fact, as I've studied the Apostle Paul's life, I've realized, you know, this was a spiritual breakthrough for him. Because from now on, when Paul's ministering in a church, like in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he's going to say, I struggle and I strive with all of God's power, which works so powerfully through me. It's almost like Paul's weaknesses, they were the tears in the fabric of his life where God's power would come in. And in the same way, there are weaknesses in our lives that if we'll take them to God, he'll invade and he'll work powerfully. But as Americans, we want to deny them, we want to ignore them, and we want to fix them. Here's the point that Paul got to, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. He says, so I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. 
How many friends do you have? How many mature Christians do you know who boast gladly about their weaknesses? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Later this year, we're going to do a series called The Prayers of Paul, where we look at how Paul prayed, and it's so different from how we pray. And we're going to try to get ourselves a little closer to that. Because what do we, if we share prayer requests at a home group or a Bible study, it's all just fix this weakness, fix that weakness, fix this weakness, fix that weakness. It's never, God's given me this weakness and he hasn't removed it, and I really want to learn to see his power through my weakness. Well, this isn't going to be an easy thing to learn. I've been trying to learn it for the last couple months. So, you know, heads up. This is not a super simple thing. But I'm just convinced that if we get this, if we get this as a spiritual skill to go to God with our weaknesses and invite him into them, I believe it'll change every year of the rest of our lives. If it takes me all year to learn it this year, I'm going to keep working on it because I just know I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I want to be able to say when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because I'm weak a lot. So that would mean that, that I'd be strong a lot, right? Well, last week, we dove into this with a really practical daily application. And if you missed last week, um, I'd say it's a good one to listen to. Because as I've been meditating on this idea of weakness for a couple months now, it was a big breakthrough for me when I realized that the Lord's Prayer... When the disciples said, Jesus, how do we pray? He essentially gave them a list of weaknesses. And he essentially taught them to go to the heavenly father every day and say, Father, you're good, you're big, you're in control. Lord, I believe you have a kingdom and it's coming. I want to be all about it. I want your will to be done. Now with that covered, the rest of the Lord's prayer is just a laundry list of weaknesses. God, I need bread. I have physical weaknesses. God, I need your forgiveness. I have spiritual weaknesses. God, help me to forgive others too. I have relationship weaknesses every day. These are daily weaknesses that Jesus says, here's how you pray every day. Go to your heavenly Father who's good and loving and let him know. I'm hungry. I've sinned again. My relationship with my spouse is messed up. And deliver me from evil. Lead me not into temptation. God, I'm weak. I I am so pathetically drawn to temptation, and I'm so vulnerable to evil. God, every day I need you. The Lord's Prayer is a confession of daily weakness. And we saw at the conclusion of that, that essentially the Lord's Prayer leaves us realizing that we are children in the universe. We are dependents, but we have a perfect Heavenly Father who loves us and is waiting every day to meet our needs to meet us in our weakness. We saw that in the, in the universe, we're very vulnerable. There are spiritual forces out there that are much greater than us. If we didn't have a Heavenly Father, we'd be in big trouble. Praise God, He reached out to us. When we didn't care about Him, He loved us. He died on the cross for us so that He could have a relationship with us, so that you can go to Him every day and say, God, here are my physical needs today. I'm weak, I'm tired, I've got allergies. Here are my spiritual weaknesses. Here are my relationship weaknesses. 
that person really hurt my feelings. I don't know how to deal with it. You know, I mean, we've all got every one of these weaknesses every day. Question is, will we start to live a lifestyle where we embrace them and we take them to God? And if we will, we'll start to see this resurrection power at work in our lives. Okay, but today I'm getting a little philosophical with you guys, and I want to ask you this question that's a natural question if you really meditate on this for a while. Why weakness? Why does a good and loving and perfect God allow us to endure hunger and divorce and cancer and someday to face death? Why weakness? Let me give you a word picture. Why weakness? First, you have to understand the state of humanity, that we are a glorious ruin. We're a glorious ruin. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, came up with this beautiful picture of a glorious ruin. Let me explain it to you. Glorious, what does that mean? Well, the Word of God, Scripture says that you, as a human being, are the crown jewel of God's creation. You are made in His image. So, you know, all the planets, all the animals, the mountains, cool. All great stuff. Really shows God's bigness. But nothing else shows His image like me and you. Why? Because we have souls. Like, we're spiritual. And our souls are eternal like God. And we're relational. You know, God's a trinity. He's three in one. He made us in His image to long for relationship to be intelligent, to have free will, to be eternal spiritual beings. We're glorious, but we're ruined by sin. That moment when Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, when it set off that you know Rocky Flats atomic chain reaction through human history, it contaminated all of us. So I've got a picture of a glorious ruin for you here, okay? The Colosseum. I've never been there. I'm sure some of you have. I hear that it's pretty glorious, when you get there, it's big, it's awesome, and it has been there for, you know, a long, long time. And in this picture, you see half of the floor is restored there, so imagine that that half of the floor isn't there, okay? Pretty glorious, right? Pretty breathtaking if you're there. But if you try to make it your home, you're going to get a little cold in the winter, right? You're going to get a little soaked during a rainstorm, It's glorious, but it's a ruin. And it's the same with our bodies that we live in. They sure are. They're incredible. I mean, evolutionary biologists still cannot come up with a reason for the human eye because it's just incredible. I mean, our bodies are glorious, but they are ruined. They are all going to die eventually. And it's the same with our entire planet Earth. I mean, she's glorious, right? But she's ruined. She has tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and and all these problems. First thing we see is this. Our weaknesses are not just problems to solve. Man, this is hard for us as Americans. They are daily reminders that we are a glorious ruin in need of a redeemer, someone who can restore it and rebuild it. I mean, it shows in our prayer requests And God loves us. I mean, we're children, okay? He's our Heavenly Father. Pray to Him about anything, okay? But we tend to just want the problems to be fixed. And that's how we live, too. If we have a problem, we just want to fix it. But these weaknesses in our lives are actually reminders. I'm living in a glorious ruin. I mean, this thing right here, maybe not glorious. Maybe, maybe not. Okay. 
but a ruin, right? It, it's going to get sick. It gets allergies. It's going gonna, it's gonna to die someday. It gets headaches, all these things. Here's what Romans chapter 8 says. The Apostle Paul's talking to believers, and he connects this idea that the earth is a ruin with our suffering. Here's what he says in Romans 8 verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings, anyone got some present sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. In other words, Paul says, believers, fix your eyes on the day when Christ returns. That's when there aren't going to be any problems anymore. Until then, you are going to have problems, but they're not even worthy to be compared with how great things are going to be someday. So then he says this, the creation, Romans 8 verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation Verse 21, so that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Listen to this, Romans 8 verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present moment. Not only that, but we ourselves. Who's that? Anyone who's placed their faith in Christ. If you've ever had a moment in your life where you got on your knees spiritually before God and you said, God, I know I'm a sinner. It's a big weakness I have, right? And I need you to save me. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I want you to be my Savior. If you haven't done that, you can do that this very moment. You come to God in weakness and you find his power. He adopts you into his family. He gives you a new heart and a new nature. And then that new nature every day groans because it's in rocky flats, It's in a planet that's still messed up. It's in a body that's still messed up. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into you when you ask Christ to be your Savior, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption. Listen to this. I'm sorry, this is kind of deep today, okay? The redemption of our bodies. Did you get that? The earth is groaning, waiting for Christ to return. If you know Christ is your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and your spirit, your soul groans, waiting for the redemption, the restoration, the recreation of our bodies. So here's the deal. When you come to Christ as your Savior, you get a new heart, a new soul. You're restored internally, but you still have an old body. And so there's this conflict And there's pain and there's weakness that comes, one, from your own fallen body, and two, from all the fallout and contamination around you and all the sinners around you who who wrong you, right? And so we're in this this moment that theologians call the already not yet. We're already saved for eternity, but God's plan of redeeming the earth and buying it back hasn't fully worked itself out yet. It's kind of like, um, I'm sorry, a car, okay? If you get an old car that you want to restore, let's say it's, it's what car guys call a barn find, okay? It's like, you know, a, uh, a 1963 Jaguar that was left in a barn in England, okay? And it's just sat there. And you find it, and it's covered in dust, and it has rust, and all the rubber parts are cracked, and the tires are flattened. You know, it's not going to start up if you put gas in the gas tank. You've got you to rebuild this car. You've got to restore it. It's a glorious ruin, right? And so how do you start? Well, you take all the parts off, and, uh, you know, if, if you've got enough budget, you get all the parts that you need to replace, right? And, and then uh, you probably start with the frame, but pretty soon you're going to get to the engine because that's kind of, a, kind of a big deal in a car, right? 
Well, we're kind of like at that place in our restoration. We've got like a, a brand new power plant inside the Holy Spirit, okay? But we've got this rusty old body on us that's still going to break down. And we just long for the day when Christ returns and he's going to make everything fully new. The way it was when it, you know, rolled off the factory floor, right? It's going to be perfect again. So we're living in this already, but not yet, Already Jesus says it's finished because he's bought all the parts. He has all the means. He knows what's going to happen. And yet we're in this moment in history when it's still being worked out. So we're living in a glorious ruin. And Satan, who's a deceiver, who's a liar, who masquerades as an angel of light, even though he's a demon of darkness, Satan loves to lie to us. He's like a magician. And he creates this illusion to make us think this world is heaven. This world is home. And it doesn't work really well in places like, you know, villages in Africa and Cambodia. So he has other tactics there. That's why you see demon possession and stuff in those places. But in a place like America, in the wealthiest country in world history, well, he can just kind of lull us to sleep by making us think this is heaven. This is home. But there's some, there's some tears in his fabric of his illusion. And it is our weaknesses and our needs and our pain. And every once in a while, we see these little glimpses through the illusion and we see reality that this world is a ruin. This world is not home. The heaven is not here and now. The heaven is a place that we look forward to, that Christ is preparing for us. So here's my question for you. Are there some problems in your life that you've just been trying to solve? That's okay. That's natural. The Apostle Paul wanted his solved. Jesus even says in Gethsemane, we're going to see next week, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Pray if it's God's will that those problems go away. But until they do, he's allowing them to be in your life so that you can see his power and so that you can be reminded that we need a redeemer and we're living in a ruin. There's kind of a popular message going around right now, and I don't want to be negative, but, you know, on certain Christian songs and certain Christian books right now, there's almost this message that says, trust in Jesus and you won't have any problems anymore. It's very popular right now. But you look at the Bible and you see that that wasn't true. I mean, the disciples trusted in Jesus, and how did it go for them? Well, you know, some got beheaded, some got crucified. They, they all got murdered. Trust Jesus, and, and hear this if you don't know Christ yet, okay? Trust Jesus, and you will have eternal life. Trust Jesus, and you will have abundant life. You'll have joy and peace through the suffering, okay? Trust Jesus, and you will have a problem-free eternity. But trust Jesus, you're not guaranteed a problem-free life right now. You see, number two, problem-free Christianity, it forgets this tension of Scripture, that the earth is still corrupted. Redemption, it began at the cross, but we redeemed people, we're now living in rocky flats, right? The, the, the blinders have been lifted off of our eyes, and now we see, hey, there's radioactive contamination. Our bosses are lying to us about it, and now it's our job to go around to the other employees and say, you've got to get out of here. 
There's one way out. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in Jesus and you can be freed from all this contamination of sin. He's left us here to be rescue agents for him. But the problem with problem-free Christianity is that, that people believe, well, as long as my circumstances are good, then God loves me. No, no, God loves you even when your circumstances are terrible. And God put himself into the worst possible circumstances so that he could be with you when your life is hard and so that he could give you an eternal life that actually will be problem-free. Until then, we're here to finish the cleanup job. We're here to rescue others. For us, you know, it's amazing how much we can endure if we know the purpose, if we have hope that it's going to end. And the best example of this is, is childbirth, right? I mean, the excruciating pain of childbirth. Why in the world are there any families that have more than one child? You know what I mean? Because if you ask a mother while she's giving birth to that first one, unless she has an epidural, but even then, she says she's not going to have any more ever, right? But then she does. Why? Because the pain, the suffering, the weakness, the need, the hurt, it all has a purpose. And there's this great hope that someday we'll be running around on two little feet. And so it's worth it. We can make it through this fallen world as long as we have purpose and hope. And in Christ, we have real purpose and real hope. And the opposite is true. We can't endure much if we don't have purpose and hope. There's a, a Russian writer who just passed away in the last few years, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived for years in the Soviet prison camps, the gulags. And in one of his books, he writes about a, a torture method where, where the guards would make inmates just move a pile of rocks from one side of the yard to the other. And as the days pass on and the inmates realize there's no purpose in this, they're just doing this to spite me, it would break people mentally. It would break them emotionally because they already didn't have hope and now they didn't have purpose. And you, if you don't know Christ yet, the reason you long for hope and purpose is because God designed you to fit into him. And he's the only one who can give you real hope and real purpose. And it's the same for us after we come to faith in Christ. And we start to see him change our thinking and our habits and our relationships because we've got this new power plant, this new heart, and the Holy Spirit's living in us. And sometimes life goes so well after we come to Christ that we forget that this world isn't our home. We start to store up treasure for ourselves here. We start to act like this is heaven. And that's the truth that some of us need today. There's a great saying from some other pastor. He said, if you, if you know Christ as your Savior, this life is the closest to hell that you'll ever be. And it's true. Your pain, your suffering, the things you go through. I can't tell you today that, you know, if you pray a prayer today, there won't be anything bad in your life again. But I can tell you from the Word of God that if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, those bad things are temporary. They're the worst it's ever going to get for you in eternity. 
and the flip is true. If you reject Christ as your Savior, who said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life, if you reject Him, then you go into an eternity separated from God. And for those who reject Christ, this world is the closest, this painful, ruined, cancer-infected world is the closest they'll get to heaven. That's why God left us here, to tell them there's a way out of Rocky Flats. Here's another layer. Until Christ returns, we will have trouble in this fallen world, okay? But he does promise peace in the midst of it. He promises to be with us, to be that good shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's with us. And so we live, if we're really reading the Bible, we don't live with a a, um, pessimistic, well, life's just going to be terrible. It's a fallen world, okay? No, we live with great hope, great confidence. And yet when, when we lose a loved one, when there's a car accident, when there's a sickness, when there's a problem, it doesn't crush our faith. It doesn't knock us over because we know, we've been taught the truth, we've believed the truth, that we're living in a glorious ruin. This is all throughout Scripture. In fact, just this morning I was reading the proverb for the day. If you've never done that, you know, Proverbs has 31 chapters, same number of days in a month, so every day you just open up to the date, right? So this morning I was reading Proverbs 14, here's what verse 32 says. When calamity comes, the wicked are brought down. But even in death, and that's the worst calamity there is, right? Death. Even in death, the righteous find refuge in God. So all through scripture, if you're reading it daily, you're going to see this theme that, you know, calamity is going to come. Hard things are going to come in this fallen world. But you can always find refuge in God. And you always have a purpose that you're here to rescue others. And you always have this hope that it will end. That deliverance is coming. This is the promise that God's talking about in Jeremiah 29, 11, when he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, as Americans, we love that verse because it says plans to prosper you, right? Great. This life's going to be heaven. No, it says plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope, future-focused, and a future. Our greatest prosperity in Christ is not going to be in this life. We get little hints and tastes of it, okay? But our greatest prosperity as followers of Christ is in the life to come. And so over and over the New Testament says, hang in there through your trials. Hang in there through your difficulties. First Peter 4.12, do not be surprised by the fiery trial that you're having to endure. Don't be surprised by it. James chapter 1 verse 12 gives you this promise to hang in there, endure. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So you know, don't be surprised when the roof leaks. Don't be surprised when the car breaks down. Don't be surprised when death comes. Don't be surprised when sickness comes because you see through the illusion You see that our ultimate happiness in heaven is not here. Don't be surprised, but don't be discouraged. Okay? You have eternal hope. You have purpose. Jesus put it this way in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. 
And he knows that discourages us. So he says, but take heart. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Number four, our ultimate hope is not pain-free living in this imperfect world. It's eternal life in a perfect world with God. You know, it's interesting with social media, with Facebook and Instagram and all the other things, that it's very easy to create uh, an image of yourself that everyone sees that you get to control and craft. And so, you know, we're surrounded by a lot of people who are living picture-perfect lives, right? They buy the new big house and take a picture in the front yard. Wait, 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 get, get a little more in there, get the whole roof in, okay? Right? And, and you know, and, and life just looks perfect through some of these social media things. And, 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 and I'm not, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. There's nothing wrong with putting your house on there, okay? What I'm saying is that, that salvation in Christ is not about having a picture-perfect life here. It's about having an eternity with God. And the reason that he left us here is not so that we can get as comfortable as possible because that's not going to happen. We're in a ruin. He left us here so we can tell others and rescue others. Let me give you from Scripture some pictures of the day of final restoration, okay? Remember the car analogy, okay, of the, the restoring a car? Uh, there's a guy in our church who, who restores cars, and he let me come over to his shop and, and drool a little bit because um, he has this one car that was actually a, a race car, uh, that the owner has asked him to restore, and, and so, you know, he's starting with the important parts, but he was, he was telling me there's some marks on the, on the body from where it actually raced. And he said, I'll leave those, uh, you know, cause those are the patina. In other words, those are when it's all restored mechanically, and it's gonna look like, you know, 99% cosmetically, that little bit will let people know this car actually raced. This was a real car. Guys, there's going to be a day in heaven when we're there and everything has been made new. But Jesus is going to have these scars on his hand. And they're going to be the patina. They're going to remind us that it used to be broken. It used to be fallen. It used to be so dark and so bad. But God came down and he took all of our weaknesses on himself so that he could rescue us out of that so that he could redeem and restore and recreate. Revelation 21 verse 4 says this about your future problem-free eternity. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Then he who is seated on the throne, Jesus Christ said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the day we look forward to. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why scripture says over and over, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, you know, don't set your eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. Everything that's seen is falling apart and ruined, but what is unseen is eternal. And then the same passage in 2 Corinthians 5 says this. It says, your body... It's a tent. 
Imagine if you were born into a tent and raised in a tent, okay? Nice tent, little two-burner Coleman stove, lantern, okay? This is life. This is all you've ever known. This is home, is living in this tent. And over the years, the weather breaks it down, and there's some tears, and there's some leaks in the ceiling, and there's some rips. And someone comes to you and says, um, I've got a mansion for you. But you've never seen a mansion. You don't even know what they're talking about. It would be scary to go. This actually happened. There was a story in Smithsonian Magazine about a, a family in Russia that ran away during World War II out into the woods, and they lived in the woods for like 30 years. And they got found. It was either the 60s or 70s. They would not go back to civilization. Because they were so, and they were dehydrated, they were starving, but they wouldn't go back. And, and that's how it is for us. We're so familiar with this life. The, the thought that all our real happiness is in the next life, we, that's why scripture says you have to walk by faith, not by sight. You have to believe it. Philippians 1 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, God has started the restoration in you. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ's return. 1 Corinthians 2.9, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man. You can't even imagine the things that God has planned for you, but they're not all here. The best ones are yet to come. So that's our ultimate hope, and that's why Jesus said this in John 14, 1 through 3, Do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. Here's my question for you today. What weakness, need, problem in your life right now is the Holy Spirit saying, I'm actually working here. You just want me to fix this. You just want me to make it all better. And, and I will. The day is coming, okay? But right now, you just need to trust that I'm working here. And instead of ignoring it and denying it, you need to look right into it and in it see that you need a Redeemer. And the earth needs a redeemer. And that I am making everything new. And if you'll come to me with your weakness, if you'll stop denying and ignoring it, you'll see my power like you've never seen it before. Let's pray that together. Father, Lord, only you can speak to our hearts. And right now I pray that you would. Lord, I pray for each brother and sister in this room where they are weak, that their weakness would not paralyze them, but that their weakness would propel them to you. Lord, that they'd know that you are a good and loving Father. And the day's going to come when you are going to wipe every tear from their eyes. And Lord, until then, it's in our weakness that we draw close to you. It's in our weakness that we get to see you do miracles. It's in our weakness that we get to see, wow, maybe he didn't heal me physically, but he sustained me emotionally and spiritually like I never could have imagined. 
Lord, we want to learn this principle because we're going to have weaknesses in our lives whether we admit it or not. We want to learn to come to you daily that you might be our strength, our protector, our provider, our father. Holy Spirit, show us our weaknesses. Give us the grace to bring them to you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to introduce you guys to a brother of ours. A lot of you guys uh, met Dr. John Bundy late January uh, when we uh, had him up here and we were able to lay hands on him and send him off in the power of the Holy Spirit to go to Cambodia. Uh, John's a great friend. He's an awesome brother of yours if you're part of this family. And um, God has gifted him with eye care as a doctor. And, and God gave him such a neat opportunity. And, and I'm going to let you talk in just a minute, okay? Um, I just want you to hear what John's going to say. It, it's going to speak to your heart. It's going to encourage you. And here's what it's a picture of. Uh, it's a picture of a Rocky Flats worker, right, who has realized that there's one way out through Christ alone, and they're running through the factory telling all the other employees there's sickness, there's corruption, and Jesus is the way out. Follow me, okay? That's what we're all called to do. Jesus says, calls it making disciples, okay? We do it here in Prescott, and by God's grace as a body, we do it around the world. So John, tell us a little about Cambodia. Yeah, so our team of four, myself and my brother, who's a pastor in Fargo, North Dakota, two other guys from two other churches in Fargo, North Dakota, went to uh, Ban Lung, Cambodia, way up in the northeastern corner of Cambodia. We were there for about a week, and part of what I really struggle with when I go on these trips is expectations. So I pray for many years, or many weeks leading up to it, you know, take away the expectations. So to get to Ban Lung, it's about 24 hours flying time from Phoenix to Phnom Penh, and then you hop in a van for about eight hours on dusty, windy roads to get up there. About six hours into our trip, our missionary, Kevin, takes a phone call. It's another missionary in the villages up there who says, hey, we have a villager who got a stick in his eye. We know that you guys are coming. Can you take a look at him? Absolutely. So we, uh, we get there, and this is in Kevin's house, and it's a flashlight. You know, it's third world country. And uh, got the guy taken care of. And that night, I didn't share this earlier because I haven't shared it with anybody, I don't think. I could not sleep, and it wasn't jet lag. I laid there on my bed, on my knees crying. Not because this is such an incredible story. This guy's out in the middle of nowhere and cuts his eye open. Um, people will argue about whether that hurts worse than childbirth or not. Luckily, I don't know. <laughs> Just take their word for it. And uh, he's eight hours from the nearest eye doctor. Couldn't afford to get to the eye doctor, let alone pay for it if he's there. And uh, one of the missionaries knows that we're coming. So the day that we get there, he does this a couple hours before we get there and we get him taken care of. But what's really amazing is when we got done, his family who came with him said, how much? And uh, Kevin told him, these gentlemen came from the United States of America because Jesus loves them. And they want you to know that Jesus loves you too. I could have gotten back on the plane and come home. <laughs> And uh, the impetus for this trip started two years ago when my brother went over there, sent back a couple hundred pictures. I'm flipping through them, and one of them just jumped out at me. And it's this fella. That lens is about three inches thick. You're supposed to put it on your paper and slide it across. It's a magnifying glass. And uh, the picture jumped out at me. And I thought, 
hey, apparently they need some eye care over there. Mm-hmm. And a uh, cool story, went to church on Sunday morning way out in the village, and it's about 95 degrees inside this one-room building, about 45 people inside, all sitting there. My brother looks over and he goes, he's here. I said, Jesus, because I'm about to die. <laughs> no, that guy with the lens. Guy with the lens. I mean, I think I was hallucinating by that point. It was hot. And uh, anyway, so it was that guy. And we found him and got him some glasses. And uh, missionary Kevin wrote me a couple weeks ago and said he's, he's using his glasses. He's one of the few believers in their village. He's able to read his Bible now. So just an amazing story. Praise God. Thank you. Are you seeing the restorer at work through his people? And thank you, John, just for just loving Jesus and following him, using the gifts that you have. And God has given each of you specific spiritual gifts and skills and opportunities so that each of us together can, can rescue the lost and point them to Christ. And uh, let's pray that together. And then um, as our offering passes, you're going to see a great video also from John's trip. And it's, it's just going to build you up in the Lord. I know it. So uh, let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for our brother. Thank you for his obedience to you. And the reminder, Lord, that when we obey you, it affects the people around us for the good. And Lord, we want to be those kind of followers of Jesus, every one of us. We want to follow you and we want our lives to encourage everyone else to follow you and see how powerful it is and how real it is that you actually are rescuing people from the fallout of sin. You're freeing slaves from sin. You're opening the eyes of the blind. Lord, would you use us, please? Let every one of us, and would you use us as a church family, Cornerstone? Would you give us soft hearts that we'd see through the illusion that this world is where we get comfortable, that we'd see through that lie, and that we would pour ourselves out Like the Apostle Paul who said, I've run the race. Being poured out like a drink offering, but I'm just sprinting to the end. And Lord, we have such a short time on this earth. We want to go all out for you. We want to tell as many as possible that there's freedom and there's eternal life and there's abundant life in Jesus. So Lord, as a church, would you use us, everything we do to reach the lost, to make disciples, and begins in each of our hearts. So we give you our hearts now. We give you these gifts with our hearts. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.